Welcome to the Launch University Podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, Kevin Jennings. Hey, everybody, this is Kevin, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Launch University Podcast. Each week, we sit down with launchers. So what is a launcher? It's an entrepreneur. It's an entrepreneur. It's someone who's naturally going to be building something no matter where they are because of who they are. And so we try to bring access to individuals who've had experience launching on things on their own, launching within the context of other organizations. We can pick their brains and learn from them as a community because we are all getting smarter together. And I have the privilege today to be with Chris Yeh. Chris is the co-author of a book called Blitzscaling, and we're going to dig into that today, that he actually uh, wrote this book with Reed Hoffman, a co-founder of LinkedIn. And I think we have a lot to learn today with him. And so I'm not going to steal too much of it, but I do know this. This gentleman has a ton of experience working, first of all, as an angel investor with products uh, himself, but also getting funding on his own products. He also was the interim CEO of Ustream. For those who know what Ustream is, Ustream was one of the early, early sites when it came to online streaming video. I remember actually having my Ustream account uh, back in the day. And, and so so I, I'm happy to have Chris with us today. So Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Kevin, it's my pleasure. It's always great to share some of these experiences. And, you know, this really fits well with the things I do. I'm known for having a mission statement, which is to help interesting people do interesting things. Hmm. And I got to believe you got a lot of interested people who are your listeners. Man, thank, well, thank, you know what? I love that mission, by the way. Uh, and, and so hopefully today we get to kind of turn tables on you a little bit and, and hear some interesting things you've done in your career. So we can kind of just Pick up from the breadcrumbs, the, you know, the clues you've left behind about things we can all do differently and dig into blitzscaling because I, I think there are a couple of things that jumped out at me when I read the book that were surprising. I think when you know, the, the title itself might lend people to think, oh, another another book that's promising organizations overnight success and fast growth. But this is this is book is much more than that. So let's start with something very simple. After doing some research on who you are, one of the things that jumped out to me, I was you know looking through your LinkedIn. I said, man. This guy loves startups. Like I said, like, some people are like, oh, they like him. I said, no, this, 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 somewhere along the lines, it became clear that Chris found something about who he was and said, this stage is me. Like this stage speaks to me, especially in technology. Um, I feel like every company you worked with since like 1995 appeared to have just been getting started. So first, is that true? And what about this stage of a business just draws you in? Yes. So it absolutely is true. I think that pretty much everything I've been involved with my entire professional career has been with a startup. And that's for a good reason. So when it comes to startups, it's always the case that I've enjoyed, I think, the creative aspects of business, right? I'm not a guy who wants to go into an office and turn a crank for 20 years and then retire. Hmm. I'm interested in learning new things. And in our book, we really talk about the fact that early stage startups need people who are generalists, who aren't specialists, who hmm. can try a lot of different things, and who are infinite learners, people who are going to go into any situation, even if nobody knows what to do, and say, okay, let me try some stuff, let me read some stuff, let me talk to some people, and let me learn how I can actually solve these problems. Hmm. Out of curiosity, for you personally, 
Did you always see yourself in as an infinite learner like that? And and because I because I when I hear you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is there are so many organizations where that skill is not appreciated because of the maturation process of the organization has grown to the point where they need specialists. And you just said I'm a generalist, and I, and I think for me, when I recognize I was a generalist, I was not in a capacity in an organization where that's what they needed. I think my leader let me thrive in that capacity, but I think the organization needed a specialist. And, and I think sometimes you can feel like you are, you know, the square peg in a round hole. So I'm just curious to hear, when did you discover that a little bit? Well, I ended up being really lucky. So what happened was right after I graduated from college, I ended up going unexpectedly into the startup world. Hmm. I had actually planned to go work for an established company. So my advisor back in college was David Kelly, the founder of IDEO, the very famous design Yeah, student. that's awesome. And I always just assumed I was going to work at IDEO, like so many other people who had come before me and so many who'd come after me. And some of my classmates, for uh, as a matter of fact, are partners at IDEO and these other design firms. Wow. But I got this mysterious letter in the mail from a company called D.E. Shaw & Company, and they were a secretive hedge fund. And they said, hey, we try to hire the smartest people in the world. Would you be interested? And I thought, what the hell would I be interested in a hedge fund? <laughs> Not me. I mean, I've got this job. I'm going to be going to IDEO. Why would I ever do this? I'm going to throw this out. And my mom said, hey, wait. They're like some rich New York bank. They'll probably fly you out to New York first class. Wouldn't it be nice to at least fly first class in your life one time? And I'm like, hmm. Yeah, and there's some friends I want to see in New York. All right, let me talk to these folks. That's great. So I talked to them, got flown out first class, first time I ever flew first class on an airplane. It's very excited about the the nuts they have. They have like these nuts. <laughs> them bring them out for you. It's amazing. It's really great stuff. <sighs> and I interviewed with the company. And again, I had no intention of ever working for the company. I just wanted a free trip. Yeah. And when I got there, they said, well, you know, we actually are going to be doing some internet startup things and we'd love to talk with you about them. And wow. I ended up talking with eight different people about these new internet startup projects that they were kicking off. This was in the wake of Jeff Bezos having left the company to start Amazon. Wow. So the company was very aware of the power of the internet and the potential there. And it ended up, you know, just turning my life uh, 90 degrees. I had intended to do one thing. And all of a sudden I said, you know what? I'm going to jump into this startup world. And that landed me in this world where I realized my skills were really suited in terms mm. of the ability to learn and pick up new things and be willing to do stuff where there was no guide, where there was no, uh, no established plan or roadmap. And I said, hey, you know what? There are a lot of people in this world who can't do this. I can. Let me stick with it. Wow. First of all, way to go, mom. You know, like every once in a while, you got to say mom was right. Wow. That's really cool. That, that, that means that she would even think that way and say, you know what, open yourself up to an experience. And, uh, and kudos to you for thinking that way so young. That's incredible. So one thing that jumped out to me as well was your resume was like littered with the word founder, co-founder, partner, and advisor. I, so I counted eight out of 23 years that didn't include those phrases. And so, I, I, so I'm just curious to understand. You, you kind of alluded to a little bit about it just now, yeah. but it's one thing to say I'm going. I'm not. I'm going to work in the startup world in the context of a company. Another thing to say I'm going to go leave that context in that check of a hedge fund and go be a founder. So, what do you think led to that discovery of okay, and I'm okay being out on my own and and experiencing the risk of you know pretty much failure as a core part of my DNA. Yeah, and I think that 
the experience of failure is really important here. I mean, I think that's a critical phrase that you just used. The fact is that the vast majority of new business ventures fail. And even if venture capitalists give you millions of dollars here in Silicon Valley, you probably got a 90% chance of failure. Hmm. So it takes a very special kind of personality to say, you know what, I'm willing to accept those chances and I'm willing to go into this field regardless. Mm -hmm. So I think that a big part of it for me is the following. I started off not as a founder, but joining a startup company and mm. working at that startup company for D.E. Shaw and Company. And you know, along the way, what I discovered is that I really felt like I wanted to be the one making these decisions. I wanted to make the bets, whether they were, I was right or I was wrong. But I wanted that responsibility. I didn't want to be the person who just said, well, you know, somebody else made that decision and it didn't work out, but it wasn't my fault. I'm like, no, no, no matter what, I want this to succeed. I want to do everything possible to make it succeed. And that means founding it and really operating at the highest level, helping to make the key decisions along the way. Hmm. So that's how I ended up really wanting to be a founder or co-founder or partner or advisor. The other thing that I tell entrepreneurs and other young people who are just starting out in their careers, I tell them, you know, there's different stages at which it makes sense to join a company. If you think about the economics and one stage is when the company's established, looks like it's going to succeed, and you're just jumping on a rocket ship. And for example, the 10,000th employee at Google still made plenty of money, mm -hmm. but they could be pretty certain at that point that they were going to make that money because yeah. the company was well established. So that's a nice low risk, high reward way of going about the world. Of course, you have to actually convince them to hire you because sure. at that point, everyone else wants to work there too. Sure. But you know, that's a problem that I figure your listeners can figure out. But the other point at which it makes a lot of sense is to really go at the very beginning mm. and beat the founder because your compensation for taking on all that extra risk is two, three, or four extra zeros in terms of the number of shares of stock you get. Mm. And so for me, it only makes sense to either, uh, from a career standpoint, really go early stage and be the founder or come in after a lot of the risk is shaken out because the only way to really compensate for that incredible amount of risk is to hold a significant stake in the company. Hmm. I love that. Wow. So, I mean, it's owning who you are and have to say either I want the stability and the, and the, even the, the cachet of being connected to this rocket ship, or I want the return of, of making that, of building the rocket ship to begin with. Yeah. And by the way, one of the calculations I did at the beginning of my career is I said, hmm, okay, you know, probably in the course of your career, you get to have maybe four or five shots at starting a company. It's not like people are going to let you do it 20 times. You probably have four or five shots at doing, starting a company if you don't succeed. Wow. And if you think about it, if there's a 90% chance of failure and only a 10% chance of success, if you went through and took five shots, it's quite possible you miss all five, right? It's entirely possible that you devote your life to entrepreneurship. You go out there, you're smart, you're intelligent, you're hardworking, you're all these different things, and yet you don't succeed. Wow. And that was a, a possibility that I had to be comfortable with myself. I said to myself, if I go down this path, if I start companies and none of them ever succeeds, Am I willing to live with that outcome? Is that something? It's not my preferred outcome, but am I willing to live with that? Because if I'm not, I shouldn't go down this path. Wow. Wow. That's convicting. Okay. So, for, so I, I'm personally, I'm, I've only been a full-time entrepreneur for eight months. 
All right. And so I, my job at all my previous roles was to be more of an entrepreneur. And so that is something I've never asked myself before. But I love that question. And, I'm, and I'll probably wrestling with that uh, for the next few weeks after we're done with this call. Um, but one thing I wanted to to uh, present you with an opportunity to speak on and why I personally got so excited was when I was reading through the book Blitzscaling, which is the subtitle is The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively valuable companies. So when I first heard blitzscaling, the word that came to my mind was growth hacking. And so for those who aren't familiar with that term growth hacking, it's a strategy that involves rapid experimentation across marketing funnels and product development and sales segments and other areas that are more connected to top line revenue growth. And a growth hacking team is usually like has marketers and developers and engineers and product managers who kind of all work together to help engage a customer base. So so think about um, Airbnb when they had integration with Craigslist, where if you put an Airbnb listing, they actually had technology set up that would automatically put the listing on Craigslist. Or when PayPal would actually give you a ten, like $10 for every time you got another person to sign up to, to kind of engage you as a growth hacking system. Or when Dropbox gave you free storage every time you got a friend to join Dropbox. Like those are growth hacking techniques that are designed to kind of grow user bases or grow uh, top-line revenue pretty quickly. But blitzscaling is not growth hacking. And I think that I, I was so it made me say, okay, so so what is blitzscaling if it's not some technologically driven strategy to just make growth happen overnight? Yeah, so and growth hacking is an incredibly important discipline. And one of the great things about writing a book like Blitzscaling is we don't have to explain growth hacking. We can go ahead and tell people, hey, go check out all these other great books and all these other great resources on growth hacking. Mm -hmm. So growth hacking is really about understanding the technique or the how. Hmm. Blitzscaling gets to the higher level question of the why. Hmm. So why is it that companies want to grow? And that seems like a strange question because everyone just says, well, of course you want to grow. Nobody wants to just stagnate and die. Everyone wants to grow. But it turns out there are times when that growth is all important. And blitzscaling is all about exploring those situations. Hmm. The way we define blitzscaling is we say that it's the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. Wow. And that's sort of like the quick one-sentence definition. Yeah, And the real thing behind it is there are times when it is so important to be the first company in your industry to reach a certain critical mass or to reach a certain scale or a certain market share that it's worth doing just about anything to move faster than the competition. And so blitzscaling is all about can you identify the situations where it is relevant can you apply the techniques to grow as quickly as possible, including techniques like growth hacking? And then finally, can you manage the process of growth so that it doesn't blow the company apart as you're tripling in size every year, year over year, and all the systems are basically rattling from the speed at which you're traveling? Wow. First of all, I love that. And so one of the things that the book clarifies is that all scaling isn't created equal. And so for the sake of orienting all of us who haven't read the book yet, would you mind providing an overview of the types of scaling? Sure thing, Kevin. So one of the things that you learn in business school is to put everything into a two-by-two two matrix. Everything in the world <laughs> is a two-by-two two matrix. And make sure you put whatever is best in the upper right-hand corner. Right? That's, that's what we all learn. 
And so we did this for the book as well. And that's how we think about the different kinds of scaling. We say there's two different axes. One axis is certainty. So they go from uncertainty to certainty. And the other axis is speed versus efficiency. Are you focused on efficiency or are you focused on speed? Well, when you start a company as an entrepreneur, you're familiar with this. You start out in a situation where you got a lot of uncertainty and you're trying to figure out how to reduce that uncertainty as cheaply as possible because you're starting off with your own money. Most of us don't have, you know, billions of dollars sitting around to start companies. We got to find a way to make it work, especially if we've given up our paycheck. Right. And so you really focus on efficiency and how do you reduce the uncertainty as efficiently as possible? If you manage to do that, if you manage to prove out your product, people are starting to buy it, you're starting to get a little bit of traction, then you can move into the phase that we would call scaling up. So now you're saying, okay, let's get more users. Let's hire more people. But you might still start off doing it efficiently if you're trying to bootstrap because you're doing it out of the revenues that you have. Now, if you really feel good about how things are going or other people are excited about it, maybe you then say, you know what? I can raise money from the outside. I can get money from venture capitalists or from a bank or, or from some strategic partner. And now I can move the needle. And instead of focusing on efficiency, I can focus on speed. Hmm. And that still makes sense because you can do some sort of analysis. and You could say, okay, here's how much it's going to cost us to buy growth. Here's the long-term value. Here's the customer acquisition cost. And even though it's less efficient to do it this way, it's still going to be adding to our bottom line and helping us out. But that leaves blitzscaling, which is the last corner, which means prioritizing speed over efficiency, so spending resources inefficiently with a lot of uncertainty. And the real question is, why do you do that? And the answer is, there are times when the greatest risk is not taking on enough risk. Wow. Wow. So with that being said, I mean, we'll talk about, you know, obviously when is a good time for others. But I also noticed that there are stages to blitzscaling. Yeah. And, but, but what caught me off guard about it, because when I expected stage, I'm thinking like more like a process, like phase one, phase two. But that's not and, and it's not what's dictated from the evolution. It's not a, it's not a bell curve, which is what I, what I think people think. They think, oh, it's stages to this. Right. It was related 100 percent to the number of employees. Which I thought was really fascinating because, once again, I'm thinking blitzscale, I'm thinking revenue numbers or, or user numbers. And the fact that it was driven by employees, I thought was very insightful and, and challenging. So, we, so what are the stages and why is it driven by employees? Yeah, so we came up with this uh, taxonomy of these five different stages of blitzscaling. And each of the stages is named after a unit of how we as human beings organize ourselves. So the first stage is the family stage. And the family stage refers to a company that has less than 10 employees. Usually those 10 employees are in a single uh, office. Sometimes they're even in a single room. And a family has the characteristics that we think of, right? It's something where people have very close-knit relationships. They see each other every day. It's a very informal kind of structure. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you were growing up, did your mom say, okay, now we're calling a board meeting. Uh, we're going to read the minutes of our previous family board meeting. And then we're going to get to the set agenda. You, please cue the PowerPoint. Right? That's not the way a family works. <laughs> the next stage is 
the tribe stage, and that's you know roughly 10 to 99 employees. You can count the number of employees in terms of tens. Hmm. And a tribe is a bunch of people who still have relatively close relationships. They probably all know each other, but they don't see each other the same way that a family does when everyone's living under one roof. Hmm. And the tribe starts to have some basic forms of governance as well, right? It's not just mom and dad. A tribe is going to have maybe some village elders, maybe a chieftain. Mm. So you're starting to think about, okay, there's the beginnings of structure. The next stage after that is what we call the village stage, and that's 100 to 1,000 employees. In other words, being able to count the number of employees by hundreds. And a village is an actual formal organization, right? There's probably a charter to the village. There is Mm. a village chief or a mayor even. There may be some council members. I mean, there's a whole structure that begins to be put in place. Now, the reason this works, the reason this happens is because as human beings, when you've got five people, you just have a set of interlocking personal relationships. But when you have 500 people, there's just way too much complexity. We need to have more formal organization in order to govern that kind of size. And the next stages after that are the city stage, where you measure in terms of thousands, and the nation stage, where you measure in terms of 10,000s. And so a giant company like an Amazon with 400,000 employees really acts like a nation. And not only is it governed in a way where there's multiple divisions or states, where there are people who uh, are actually thinking about not just how the company runs, but it's foreign policy, Mm. so to speak, Mm -hmm. how it relates to other companies. At the scale that an Amazon or a Facebook is at, they're also actually dealing directly with governments, right? Yeah, it yeah. really is the case that in our modern world, these nation stage companies are like nations unto themselves. And that thinking of them that way actually helps you think about what your role as a leader needs to be. You took the words out of my mouth. I, when you were speaking, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I, that's the number one conviction I just had was, Based on what you aspire for your company or for, you know, whether as an entrepreneur or entrepreneur, the vision that's set before you as a leader, wherever you are, you almost have this roadmap that they've kind of given you, un, you know, even if it's unspoken about the growth track you need to personally have as a leader to be able to still be relevant when the growth occurs. Exactly. And part of the reason why we come up with these stages and we emphasize the difference between the stages is a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize just how much a company changes mm. as it grows. Wow. Right? The company works in a completely different way at each of these different stages. And as an entrepreneur, you need to, or an intrapreneur for that matter, starting up a new division or project, you need to understand that the way you govern is going to change drastically from stage to stage. And in fact, you might even need to change your management team quite radically from stage to stage as well as you bring in people with the experiences necessary to handle each different stage of growth. Yeah, no. So, so, so with that being said, what I wanted, what I wanted to ask you um, is about business models, because because mm-hmm. the book clearly says, hey, some business models enable blitz scaling better than others. Now, because because you, you also you said there are certain environments when we, where blitz scaling is required, but that's a separate con- a separate question. That there are business models that do that better than others. So, why is that, and what models should we consider? If we want to build quickly and sustainably, because that's one of the things the book hits on very clearly is blitzscaling is about sustainability. And as you said earlier, make sure the rocket ship can actually, you know, maintain itself with the speed. 
Exactly. So when you are blitz scaling, what you're doing is you're sacrificing efficiency. You're spending a lot of resources in order to increase your speed. And the question is why? And the answer we give comes from an old movie from the early 1990s called Glen Gary, Glen Ross. It's a classic movie you sometimes see on television sometimes. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. I haven't, but I have heard of it. So the, the reason the movie is very famous is there's a speech where this young, thin Alec Baldwin comes in and he's giving a speech to these real estate salesmen. He talks about always be closing and it's this famous speech about sales. And the way he sets it up for these salesmen is he says, you know, this is a contest and first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Whoever sells the most gets a Cadillac. Whoever sells the second most gets a set of steak knives <laughs> and whoever sells the third most gets fired. <laughs> And so we use this as a way of explaining how increasingly the world works. So because the internet has connected us all together, more and more markets are global, more and more markets are Glen Gary, Glen Ross markets, hmm. where first prize is a Cadillac, second prize is steak knives, and third prize is you're fired. And you could see that with something like you know consumer social networking, right? Facebook is first prize. Twitter or possibly Snap is second prize. And then third prize is Friendster or MySpace or some defunct one that's in the dustbin of history. Right. And so, gosh, if you are locked in a race and if you win your Facebook and if you come in, in third place, your MySpace, how important is it to move fast? Yeah. It's pretty damn important. Yeah. And so the business model that you choose says, okay, Am I in a Glen Gary, Glen Ross market? Hmm. If I am, then maybe blitzscaling makes sense. Okay, if blitzscaling is a possibility, now let's look at a set of growth factors to see whether or not it actually makes sense. So we start with market size. Obviously, you need a giant market. If you want to build a $100 billion company, you need a giant market. Next, we have the distribution. Uh, we talked before about growth hacking. The reason it's so important is in many cases – it's more important to get your product out in front of people than to build the single best product you can. Mm. It is we, are, we don't live in a world where they beat a path to your door for a better mousetrap. You've got to have a better mousetrap, and you've got to have a YouTube channel, and you've got to have some viral videos about mousetraps, and you have to go out there and get that distribution in Home Depot, right? If you want the world to beat a path to your door, you've got to do the beating. Mm. Next, you have gross margins, which means how much money do you actually make when you sell this stuff? And that's really important, A, because the higher your gross margins, the more valuable the company. That's how you get your $100 billion companies. Companies like Facebook have really super high margins. But on the other hand, the other thing is those margins give you more money to grow. They help finance your growth. Because if you have low margins and you're growing really fast, you're going to be consuming money hand over fist. You're going to have to raise capital over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And the instant you can't, you're done. Finally, uh, as a growth factor, we talk about network effects. And network effects basically mean that each additional person that joins the network makes that network more valuable for all the previous people. So mm. classically, something like Facebook is, has a strong network effect because every additional person who joins Facebook makes Facebook more valuable for everyone else. And the reason the network effects are so important is the network effects are often the factor that makes a market a Glengarry Glen Ross market. Mm. So... Network effects mean that being the first to scale can give you an insurmountable advantage. Mm. And so if you could get an insurmountable advantage, there's plenty of time to make money after you've decided to scale back on your investment. 
So companies like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon spend huge amounts of money to achieve that position of market leadership. And after they do so, they can then pivot the business in order to actually start making money. Or in the case of Amazon, they continue deferring that because Wall Street's willing to, to let them do that. But the network effects are the things that give you that Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross advantage. And so you need to look at those four things. And then based on that, you can pick a business model that optimizes those growth factors and that allows you to tap into a giant market that gives you a way to really get distribution, that gives you strong gross margins, that has network effects so that as you grow, you can build market leadership and build an enduring advantage over, your, uh, over your, the competition. Wow. Once again, I think what you all have done with Blitzscaling, I mean, and I, I will say this at the end of the podcast, but I think it's important to say even now, for everyone who looks at these businesses we that we all admire as entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, the Amazons of the world, the, um, you know, Facebooks of the world, the LinkedIn's of the world, um, and I know we're about technology, but I mean, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, et cetera, these companies we just, we just value so much, the reality is, They've given us a formula to to process if what we're building really is that, right? And I think for plenty of entrepreneurs who have good ideas, say, oh, hey, honey, hey, friends, hey, mom, dad, I got this great idea for the next Facebook. And the reality is you've, you've helped me understand, hey, you can process this by yourself before you go embarrass yourself in front of your family and friends and say to you, you don't have the next Facebook. A matter of fact, Facebook has such an advantage of, on you that unless you have a true unique identifier, there's no way you're going to be. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's almost it's, I mean, it's practically impossible to say right. to, to, to say that. Now, obviously, I would never say impossible, but it's practically impossible for you to say you're going to build next Facebook because of these factors, um, which I think are really, really actually clear cut. And I think actually kind of strips some of the creativity away. I think as entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, we have ideas. That's that's never going to be the problem. But we do need some checks and balances we can process by ourselves before we try to you know sell off the car and tell our tell our spouse we quit our job only for them to be like, I knew this was insane before you did it. Um, you know exactly, and, and understanding whether a concept or a business idea is blitz scalable, if it is, it doesn't mean you're going to succeed. Because guess what? Uh, as we've discussed, this is all very uncertain, right? By definition, there's uncertainty involved in blitz scaling. But what it does mean is that if you do succeed, the results may be astronomical, mm-hmm. right? They will allow you to establish whether or not you can build one of these massive world-spanning companies. And that, I think, is the dream of almost every entrepreneur, right? To have an impact that changes the world. My next question kind of takes us back to a question, something we talked about a moment ago, and that was the idea of, you know, the different types of scaling and and what, you know, and how how they're organized by, you know, the the, the stages of people and how they're organized. And we we alluded to the fact that it does require something different of us as leaders. Um, yes. You know, is there something you can, is there a phrase or some or some things you can share with us that, that kind of specify what that requirement is of us so that we can start to say, okay, if this is my aspiration, I now know how to at least start my maturation process and steward that on my own to make sure I'm ready so that, you know, I don't have to one day get fired from my own company because the company grew faster than my own development and I had to be removed because I was incapable of leading at that level. 
Absolutely. And a big part of this is that if you're an owner or a leader of a company that's growing this rapidly, as you put it, Kevin, you have to make sure that you're not the bottleneck. And so we tell people, you need to become an infinite learner. Hmm. And what we mean by infinite learner is that you understand that learning is something that's going to take place continuously until you die. Hmm. Right. So you don't stop learning when you graduate from college. You don't stop learning when you raise that money from the venture capitalist. You don't stop learning even when the company goes IPO. Hmm. You got to keep learning continuously because as we saw from the stages of blitzscaling, these companies change rapidly from stage to stage. And the skills and experiences that brought you success at one stage won't necessarily help you at the next stage. You've got to go out there and just keep on learning, finding out more. And what we tell on uh, what we tell entrepreneurs, but also intrapreneurs, is there's a couple of things that you need to do in order to be an infinite learner and in order to be able to scale yourself. One of them is learning how to actually delegate, because guess what? You can't do all the work. Oof. You gotta find great people, give them the opportunity to do the work themselves. And so learning how to let go is something that's critical. A lot of entrepreneurs have difficulty with this. And I often tell them, listen. It's very easy to let go if you find someone who is better at something than you are. And everyone aspires to that. But you know what? You're an entrepreneur. You're probably really smart. You're probably really good. In fact, if you wait until you can find someone who's better at stuff than you, you might be waiting a long time. Instead, you got to instead say, well, can I find people who may not be better than me, but who are more focused than I am, Ooh. who are more dedicated than I am, Ooh. who really take, 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 the, take, up, take the baton from you and move it forward faster than you ever could. And most importantly, instead of just one baton being moved forward, it's five or six batons because you're handing it off to a variety of different people. That's great. And again, they don't have to be better than you, but they have to be more focused and more dedicated than you. Goodness gracious, Chris. Well, for anybody at any stage of your business or any stage of your organization, I don't care where you are, you should. I hope you hung tight for 33 minutes because if you did, that alone just hopefully liberated a lot of us in our roles. Um, if you're an emerging leader and, and, you, and your hard work got you to the next level, delegating is really hard because your hard work got you to the next level. And you know, if, if you're an entrepreneur and, and your family is depending on your output. Letting go feels irresponsible. But when you say who can be more focused, the answer gets really clear really fast. Um, and so that, that's, man, that's, yeah, you, you've dropped a lot of stuff on me already, uh, Chris. So I, first of all, I feel like I owe you money. Um, so, 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 so seriously, thank you. Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a location you could send a check. <laughs> I don't know. I hope you take a, a box of Cracker Jacks and, a, and, a, and maybe a dollar. Um, but, you know, but I, I think this is really powerful. So you answered one of my questions already, which was how, how we know if bliss scaling is right for us because we have those growth factors that are clearly outlined for us. But I want to turn to the entrepreneurs on this podcast because I do believe if you are being given authority or responsibility over a new division, which I which I've had the chance to experience before, and and it's exciting. But if you are if you're here, if you're on this podcast trying to you know, be an infinite learner so you can bring back to prepare for this new opportunity. If you bring an idea like blitz scaling to the organization and they came in there like, oh, yeah, we're going to scale this thing super fast. We've got this aggressive, aggressive, uh, you know, a goal for the year. And it just dawned on you when Chris was talking 
that one of the growth factors is just not there. Like you, I mean, it just hits you. You're like, oh my goodness, I have the opportunity. I said yes to it already. And I have to get them to understand blitzscaling before it's too late. Because if we don't, I'm destined to struggle. Like this, the, the, the writing's on the wall. How do I possibly introduce these ideas to blitzscaling in an existing organization, period, just from any seat on the bus? Yeah, and that's an excellent question because obviously I think that you know it, people understand blitzscaling in the context of startups, but I think it's just as important in the context of an established company, if not more so because guess what? Most of the people in this world work for an established company. It's far more likely that you'll be an entrepreneur than an entrepreneur in your career, and I want to make sure that our advice is relevant to you as well. So let's start with this. The first thing is to understand that an established company is not a monolith. So mm-hmm. let's take a company that's super duper established. Um, you're you've 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 based in Atlanta from time to time. Let's take Home Depot. Okay, great. Home Depot clearly a very established company, and Home Depot is not a company that's tripling in size every year that's anymore. Right. That's not the way it works. However, within Home Depot, there are probably divisions or initiatives that are tripling in size every year, and that's because there are also divisions or businesses within Home Depot that are in decline every year. That's right. And underneath the surface, underneath the vision of, oh, this is an established company sailing along 10% of growth per year, there's actually all these mini companies inside, some of which are growing rapidly, some of which are shrinking, and trying to figure out how you can manage all of these, this entire portfolio of businesses, is the challenge that faces the established company. Hmm. If you are the entrepreneur who is working on one of those rapidly expanding, high-growth businesses within the company, then yes, the lessons of blitzscaling absolutely apply. However, you may need to apply them in slightly different ways than you would if you were an independent startup. Hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, and so for, for, for you, uh, you know, you know, hey, we're going to put, hey, hey, Chris, we have a new idea. We have a new division we want to launch within Home Depot. We now feel like we want to join the delivery revolution. We think that we can, you know, almost take on Ikea because we have all these home improvement projects we've scoped out. You could pick a home, you could pick a home improvement project online and we deliver the exact amount of, you know, wooden, no, lumber you need, the tools you need. You can drop five grand on our website and literally a, a pack shows up at your doorstep. You know, we're coming for Ikea. Right. You know, we're, 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 blue, we're Blue Apron for home improvement now. Exactly. We're Blue Apron for home improvement. I love that. We start a new business, everybody. Watch out. Chris, Chris yay. We're, start, we're taking over. But, but I, I, I think, you know, for, for you, is, is it more of a, okay, hey, I want to pivot and, and, or, or do I want to like, sit down with my leadership and explain this concept? Do I just want to get my team oriented on this idea and say, hey, we are going to blitzscale this division and then just let people ask us what we're doing differently? Like when it comes to leading this kind of stuff into some kind of mindset, how, how is it more of a just take the influence you have and do it there first? What, 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 what have you seen that's effective? Yeah. So the way I would approach this, I would first begin by doing my own analysis. I would say, okay, here's the opportunity. What do I think is the market size? What do I think the distribution model is going to be? What do I think the gross margins will be? Where are their network effects? And if I don't like the answers to some of those questions, how do I re-engineer the model? Because mm-hmm. I haven't built it yet. I could still easily make changes. That's right. How do I re-engineer the model to make it more blitz scalable? Then when you feel satisfied with what you've done on your own, 
you know, this is a team sport, start getting other people involved. It might be the people who work for you. It might be potential collaborators within the company. It might be potential collaborators outside the company and start asking them, Hey, here's how I see these factors. How do you see these factors yeah. and start getting the input from the outside? Cause none of us is uh, so much of a genius that we can't benefit from these outside perspectives. We're going to learn from what other people bring to the table. And after that, then when you feel like you've really road tested it, not just your own understanding, but the understanding of other smart people around the table, the people in your network, now you can go to management. You could say, listen, I think we have an opportunity to build something amazing here. This blue apron for home improvement could be worth billions of dollars of revenue to Home Depot in less than five years if we play our cards right. And now what we need to do is we need to set up this initiative for success so it has the best chance of doing it. Because, of course, it's not trivial to build a multi-billion dollar business. There's always going to be challenges and there's chances that we'll fail. But here's how we can give ourselves the best chance to do this and to be the first to beat Lowe's and to beat all those other guys to doing this. Hmm. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the buy-in at the executive level as well. You want to make sure that they're supporting what's going on. Because guess what? You know, If you were starting a company independently, you get a little further along, you're like, things are going well. Okay, great. Let me go find some investors. And there's a lot of investors. The first ones are probably going to say no. But if you keep talking to investors, hopefully eventually one of them says yes, and then you're able to build your company. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're building it inside the company, There's not a lot of investors you can go to. There's one investor you can go to the company, and maybe there's a couple of of different executives, but mainly there's only going to be one or two. Okay, so what you've got to do is you've really got to get them on board because they're your sole source of funding. Hmm. And that is the big challenge of being an entrepreneur, getting that buy-in. The good news is that if you pick the right business model and you pick the right business, you're addressing a need that the senior management team already knows exists but doesn't have a solution for. Mm. And so you're the straw that they're grasping. You're the life preserver that they're clinging on to because they know they need to change, mm. but they don't know how. And here you come offering a solution. I love that. I love that. I think there's some, first of all, I mean, Chris just gave us all a roadmap. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about this, as you all know, when I do these interviews, I am selfishly asking him questions. I am off script because I want to learn as much as I can while I have Chris Yeh for an hour of, my, for, of his time. And to me, that's huge to say, have I been intentional about asking the right questions beneath me, to the side of me? I mean, cherry picking experts from other departments to weigh in and beat the idea up long before it goes to, to the executive team, knowing that if I say, hey, Chris Ye from the, that department looked at this and he, and he helped me develop this, not necessarily to say it's his idea or even to put all the blame on him if it's a bad idea, but to say, I've done the best I can to get the smart minds you all have hired to look at this and make sure we were being as intelligent about this as we could. That's, that's, that's incredible. So I have two more questions for you and I'll let you go. And that's one is like just any final advice. I think that's just for, for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who are starting just, Hey, you know what? I've seen this happen. I've advised this. I've obviously done this as a founder, you know, in my 15, 15 out of 23 year career, what just parting words might you share for those who are listening? So I think that the most important thing that you can do 
is to really develop a strong self-awareness of your strengths and weaknesses, of the things you enjoy and don't enjoy. So oftentimes people say, I want to be an entrepreneur. They picture themselves ringing the bell of the New York Stock Exchange when the company is going IPO. But to get to that point, there's many years of hard work and toil. And if you don't enjoy the actual parts of the job, it's going to be a miserable time. So Mm -hmm. really understand what you like. So for example, uh, I have friends who are authors and their job is as a public speaker to go around the country and speak to a hundred different audiences. And then they tell me, oh, I'm an introvert. I don't like speaking to audiences. I'm like, well, you like the money, you like the fame, <laughs> but guess what? That every single day, your profession is requiring you to do something you don't want to do. That doesn't strike me as a good fit. Figure out what are the things you actually enjoy doing. Some people love talking to other people. My wife, she hates talking to people. Okay, great. Yeah. You, know, you got different, different strokes for different folks. I love to read. I hate to read. I want to try new things. I, wanna, uh, I want to optimize things that already exist. Try to figure out what kinds of activities you actually enjoy and then engineer the business model and engineer your own job around those things that you enjoy. Mm, that's great. I, I'm no no commentary besides please listen to that man and and I, and I'm gonna do the same. Um, so last question: Where can we learn more about you and Blitzscaling? Uh, please, no, please. So this this is this is a non shameless plug. I think that everyone who's listening right now is probably thinking, how do I stay connected to this guy and keep getting a piece of his brain outside of this podcast? Well, believe me, I am almost completely lacking in shame. That was something one of my very first mentors told me. He said, you know, Chris, you're a shameless self-promoter. That's why you're going to be successful. Mm. And he was right. So uh, <laughs> a couple of different a couple of plugs. First of all, to learn more about Blitzscaling, of course, you can buy the book, Blitzscaling, at Amazon and pretty much every other store imaginable. It has been selling very well. I'll warn you that in some places it's sold out. But try your best. You'll be able to get to it eventually. For coordinate, for to coordinate and really understand more information on Blitzscaling and other stuff we might be doing in the future, you can go to Blitzscaling.com and you can actually sign up for our mailing list. So we'll let you know as new Blitzscaling-related content comes out. If you are interested in learning more and getting help for your own company, you can go to the Global Scaling Academy. That's at globalscalingacademy.com. And we have courses about Blitzscaling. We have programs for companies that are trying to scale up. And in general, you can also follow me on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else, just as Chris Ye. I am fortunate enough to have a name that is not so common, and I've been able to be there first. Uh, I have another friend, the other Chris Ye. Poor guy has to make do with the the, the pickings after I'm done. (laughs) But I'm not going to apologize for it. I need it more than he does. That's awesome. Well, thank you for your time. I'm incredibly humbled. Uh, by the opportunity to to spend time with you and um, and just appreciate your generosity. I mean that there's just I mean I'm sure everybody can hear it. Uh, there's just such a sincerity and an, um a it's clear you are in your sweet spot in life. And um, I'm very grateful that you've been willing to share the, to the Launch University community. And um, yeah, so with that being said, everybody pick up Blitzscaling. You will not regret it. If you think that you got all the book from this conversation, you did not. And um, and so I, I, I highly recommend it. And and more importantly, I don't care really what kind of entrepreneur you want to be, if it, or, or what you envision for the company. It's the opportunity for someone to give you insight at a deep level of what it means to build those types of organizations. And you can decide, first of all, if you don't want to do that or not. And two, there are things you can totally steal. I mean, I I think to me, as an entrepreneur who's only been full time for eight months, I can tell you 
I have not been fanatically measuring gross margin the way I need to. And this book really convinced me to say, Kevin, if you can just get, I know you're, you're selling time, you have a, t- a team and it's an agency you do, but if you could just like lock in on gross margin, you would figure out even what kind of engagements are most profitable and stop selling this project that just is actually killing you and you just don't know it. You're, you're measuring profit and, and that is great because the lights are on, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're actually able to reinvest the way you want to. And so you need to be able to make better decisions. And so that for me alone, along with many other things you shared today, really helped me on the right track. So then, thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody, for checking out the Launch University podcast. If you want more of this, first of all, Chris was had a lot of great insights, a lot of information. We have show notes for things just like this. If you go to launchuniversity.com forward slash podcast, we have a recap of this episode. There are a lot of frameworks and ideas you need access to. If you're driving, if you're working out, hopefully you did not try to write any of this down. And so we have an opportunity for you to go get that right there for you. We have links to his social media, all those things there for you. Also, give us a, um, actually subscribe to this podcast as well. That's important. Why do I want that over a rating or review, which I cut myself off there? Why? Because we want you to grow on the go. You have to automate becoming an infinite learner. That does not that has to be a habit you structure around your life. It's not going to be some wish or a goal on a piece of paper. So that is a big part of this process and why we do what we do. Every guy on this podcast has a full-time job. This is not paying our bills. We are designed, we want to be infinite learners ourselves. We want to empower you to do the same exact thing. All right. And the last thing is leave us a rating or review that matters so that we can keep doing this kind of thing for you. So we'd appreciate the love and the, and the support simply by jumping on iTunes, leaving rating a review. If this interview alone, I guarantee I know it was worth the effort or time to do that. So we'd appreciate that. And lastly, come back next time because we have more conversations with people like Chris Ye blowing my mind on a Friday afternoon. So again, Chris, thank you again for your time. And I wish you the family the best of luck. Huge pleasure, Kevin. Be happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Launch University podcast. We hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more helpful resources, visit launchuniversity.com.